Hello and welcome to this week's episode of The Crazy Money Podcast. I'm Paul Allen, your host. I'm glad you're here. Before we get started, I got to do a little self-promoting because, well, if I didn't promote myself, I might die in the same way. Sharks who stop swimming have a very short lifespan. I will be performing this week at the North Carolina Comedy Festival in Greensboro, North Carolina. I'm there the 25th and 26th. That would be Thursday and Friday nights before I fly home on Saturday morning to see my son play in a baseball game and get several hits. I'll also be performing May 10th through 12th at the Laughing Skull Comedy Festival right here in Atlanta, Georgia. I have a bunch of other dates, the details of which and the details of those festival shows are also on my website at paulollinger.com slash events. Okay, so this week's episode, ladies and gentlemen, in keeping with the theme of this podcast, is about the relationship we have with money. More specifically, how the relationships that we have as men or as women how they differ, how you see money differently. And to facilitate this conversation, well, to catalyze the conversation or the point of the conversation at all, is an interview with Jean Chatsky. If her name sounds familiar, well, that's probably because you've seen her on dozens or hundreds of her appearances on the Today Show, NBC's Today Show, where she is the financial editor. She's also an award-winning personal finance journalist, and she's the host of the Her Money podcast. She's written several best-selling personal finance books, And her newest book, Women With Money, has just hit shelves in bookstores, real and virtual. I thought it was a very interesting conversation. She put a ton of work into this book, and there's a lot of very important observations that you should think about. Whether you are a woman, whether you are married or in a relationship with a woman, whether you are the son or daughter of a woman, or whether you are the father, brother, sister, uncle, or aunt of a woman. Did I cover all the bases there? I hope I did. Point being is, regardless of your gender, you have something to learn here, and it's worth a listen. Here you go. Here's a conversation with Jean. If you don't ask, more money is not coming your way. My husband spent almost 20 years as an internal head of talent at a major magazine company, and he would always leave a little something back waiting for the negotiation. And it was a company of many women. And in a lot of cases, that negotiation never happened. My name is Paul Ollinger. I'm a stand-up comedian with a background in the corporate world. I hit the lottery when I worked at a small company called Facebook. I'm fascinated with money, why we're so obsessed with it, and how it makes us happy or not. This is not a podcast about how to make a million bucks, how to beat the stock market, or how to save money by switching cable providers. It's about how we think about and live with money as a society and as individuals. It's about the choices we make that lead us toward or away from happiness. Welcome to Crazy Money. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the Crazy Money Podcast. Today, I am honored to have on the show the NBC Today Show financial editor, multi-time author and host of the Her Money podcast and author of a brand new book called Women With Money, Jean Chatsky. Jean, welcome to the program. Hi, thanks so much for having me. We appreciate it. So the new book is called Women With Money, The Judgment-Free Guide to Creating the Joyful, Less Stressed, Purposeful, and Yes, Rich Life You Deserve. What's the thumbnail pitch, the elevator pitch for the book? That within a very few number of years, women are going to have a lot more money than we've ever had in the past. And yet we don't feel 
in control or confident when it comes to managing it. So this book lays out a three-part plan for giving us that control and that confidence. And the stats are pretty compelling. You open the book with some pretty uh, mind-blowing numbers. Women will inherit 70% of wealth over the next 40 years. Half of millionaires are women. By 2028, women will control 75% of discretionary spending around the world. By 2030, women will control 66% of America's wealth. Sounds like women are the new China. What's going on? (laughs) Yeah, well, let's talk about that inheritance number for a second. It's not that parents prefer us to our brothers. It's that women will inherit twice. We will inherit both from our parents and from the spouses that we outlive. And so that's a very, very big factor in it. But when you look at the earnings curve too, although we haven't closed the wage gap and it's going to take us many years if you look at the current projections to do that, educationally, women are running leaps and bounds ahead of men. We are, for every 132 women that graduate from college these days, only 100 men do. And those degrees, those diplomas are going to put women into higher earning positions. And then there's the spending side of things. And women have already taken over the lion's share of the spending in this country. We already do about 80 to 85% of discretionary spending, depending on whose numbers you look at. But what's interesting, what I think is so telling is it's not just food and clothes anymore. It's cars and homes. So we're making these big decisions every single day. And yet sometimes we do it without feeling like we really have the knowledge or the the confidence to do it correctly. And you cover so much in this book. It's A to Z, soup to nuts, entrepreneurship to caring for aging parents. What are the most important messages if somebody asked you to to summarize them that you would want people to take away? I want women to take away the fact that, first of all, there's no shame in not knowing how to do these things as if it was a right of birth. Nobody teaches you how to manage your money. Very few people talk about money. It's something that we have generationally just buried under the covers or in the closet. And so this is not anything to be embarrassed about. This is not anything to feel like it's your fault. At the same time, not stepping up to take over, not stepping up to assume this sort of power is a real problem because for those demographic reasons I mentioned, being able to manage our money is even more important for women than it is for men because we're going to outlive our spouses and because more of us are staying single longer. And because we have for generations earned less, what we're left with is having a smaller sum of money at retirement and having to make it last a longer number of years. And the final big takeaway has to do with investing. And that's where a lot of women get stuck. I I do a lot of talks around the country about this book, about other books. And one of the things that 
I've noticed is this reluctance to step up and really invest our money, own the ability to invest our money, to take the appropriate risks when it comes to our investments. Research has shown women have far too much money sitting in checking and savings, money that should be at work in the market because it needs to be at work in the markets because that's the only way that we keep ahead of taxes and inflation. And we get so stuck on this need. And, and I, I really believe it is a need, not a want for safety and security and stability and savings that we hold ourselves back from, from investing. And so switching that equation around so that we are more forward thinking in terms of our investments is a really important point. Yeah, you talk about how there's almost a mental block for women to consider themselves investors. Like they'll say, well, I have money in the market, but I'm not really an investor. Exactly. And, and my feeling is, yeah, you are an investor. What you're not is a trader. You know, we have this perception that all investors have to look and sound like Jim Cramer. And Jim Cramer is, he's a trader. He, he's in it every day. He's trying to make moves every day. Investing is slower. Investing is for the long term. Investing is not trying to time the market or trying to time your purchases or sales of any individual stocks and mutual funds. It's much more about asset allocation, which is just figuring out what's the right mix of stocks and bonds and cash for me, putting your money to work in that sort of a portfolio, and then adding to that over time. That's what we do in our 401ks. It's what automation has helped us do in our 401ks. And the thing that we have to understand is that particularly... You know, for some people, a 401k, if you're maxing out, if you're getting all the matching dollars and you're maxing out, that may be enough money for some people to retire on. The amount that you're able to put into an IRA each year, which is up to $6,000 for 2019 and another grand if you're 50 or over like me, that may not be enough to retire on. And so we've got to get ourselves to the point where we can invest other money outside of our retirement accounts. We have to do more. And that means embracing having a brokerage account, embracing just putting money into a brokerage account and putting it to work much like you do in a 401k. So that sort of unwillingness or the block of not identifying as an investor, do you think that's part of the conditioning of women and their relationship with money? Does that start when they're children and how society treats them or how they're treated in their own households? Yeah, unfortunately. I mean, research shows that it's still true that parents still are guilty of talking to our sons more about investing and to our daughters more about budgeting. And hopefully that is on the way to changing, but it's the way that a lot of young women in this country were raised. How do I, as a parent of both a son and a daughter, how do I, am I unconsciously making that mistake or what other mistakes might I be making in treating my daughter differently? And how can I be more conscious of that? You know, it's, it's funny. I've been asking my, myself the same questions as I've been working on this book because I've got a son and I've got a daughter as well. And I've, I've wondered, am I, am I treating them differently? Am I, you know, unconsciously? I, I was thinking about this. We've, we've got the Jewish holiday of Passover coming up. 
Mm-hmm. And my daughter can, she's, she can make a, a great matzo ball soup. She, she knows how to do that. I, I think my son wouldn't have a clue. And, and that's because <laughs> I, I took her, you know, I had her stand with me and we did it together. And I, I didn't do that with my son. And so I wonder if I've done the same things with them as it comes to money. And I think the answer is having conversations maybe with both at the dinner table being just conscious of our own unconscious biases and encouraging, you know, trying to encourage them both to do the same things. If you're going to open a brokerage account for one, are you going to open a brokerage account for the other? Are you going to show them both how to follow a stock online? Are you going to expect them both to get jobs in the summer? Are you rewarding both of them for learning to become savers and reaching a goal that they set for themselves. It's that kind of holding ourselves accountable, you know? I'm supposed to talk to my children at the dinner table? That would require them to turn I know. You're, off their you're supposed to put you're supposed to put down your phone <laughs> and talk to your kids. And they you know, yeah. I mean it's just about like you talk about the news. That's part of it. I mean we, we have to get ourselves to just have these conversations about money like we have conversations about politics. It doesn't have to be a deep discussion. It can be, you know, the Fed changed interest rates. What does that mean? What does that mean to the money that you've got in the bank that we put in there at your birthday? What does that mean to your college savings account? You know, what does it mean when we hear that Amazon paid no taxes last year? Why, why is that a thing? Why is that important? What do they think about that? There's so many entrees to to having to making money an everyday thing, and that way I think it becomes less scary. I agree, yeah, and that's part of the reason why I wanted to start this podcast. Not so much from a personal finance standpoint, but from an understanding what we what we want from money. And you talk a lot about that too. And we'll get down to sort of empowerment and knowing number and finding why. But I think you affirm people's specifically women's feelings of this being hard or sticky or embarrassing and and you encourage them to explore their own personal wants and needs. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah. One of the questions that I asked women over and over, I, I reported this book in a couple of ways. There were a lot of interviews with individual women, but there were also a lot of a lot of what we call her money happy hours. So Her Money is my website, hermoney.com. Her Money is also the name of my podcast, which is just my continuing conversation on women and money with interesting guests and interesting people. And we have these live events called Her Money Happy Hours, where we gather groups of a dozen women, sometimes a few less, sometimes more. And we created a deck of cards that on each card, is a leading question about money. And it's everything from, have you had a financial wake-up call and what was it, to is it okay to hide money from your spouse in your underwear drawer? And it's, <laughs> it's you know, there are a lot of them. And that they're designed to, to get you to laugh a little bit, to get you to think a little bit, and to certainly get you to start talking. And that's what happens. The women who come to these have a glass of wine, they pull a card, they start talking, and it's, it's really empowering and liberating and 
fun and often funny and sometimes a little scary at the beginning, but you get past that because everybody else gets past it. And I did some of the reporting for this book in these happy hours. I just, I turned my tape recorder on and I just captured them. And one of the things that I, I learned was that we, if we can get ourselves to the point where we are asking ourselves the question, what is it we want from our money? Then we can start figuring out the way to get there because everybody's answer is a little bit different. You know, it's, it's all, it's very personal. What do you want from your money? It's like, what do you want from your life? And money is just the tool that helps you or one of the tools that helps you achieve the life that you want. At least it should be. And are women more reluctant than men to admit what they want or maybe put another way, are they, are they more likely than men to ignore their own needs? Well, yes, is the answer to the second question. I and, don't know if they're more reluctant than men to admit what they want. Well, I, I, I didn't ask enough men to know the answer, <laughs> but, but yeah, women are the nurturers. You know, so much, the book is actually divided into three parts. It's a three-part plan. And part one is understanding yourself and your emotions and your wants when it comes to money. Part two is getting at those wants for yourself. So it's investing and buying homes, which women want to do whether or not we're partnered up and making sure that we've got money to invest in businesses of our own or businesses of others and spending with joy, by the way, because I, I do think there's so much baggage these days around spending that when we spend, it should be intentional and we should do it joyfully. We all work far too hard not to, not to get some joy out of spending. And then part three is what we want for everybody else. And everybody else is, is our, our kids. You know, we want our kids to go to college and then we want them to launch into independence. We also want to be able to help our parents if our parents need help. And we want to help the world, right? And so, you know, women are, we're the nurturers. We're, we're born that way and, and we've, we're raised that way and we feel it pretty deeply. And how does that adversely affect women's personal finances or how does caring for others first put you in a bad position financially? If you do it to a degree to what you rob yourself of your own financial security, it gets in your way, right? So the personal finance is, is all, all trade-offs. It's mm -hmm. all about you've got a limited resource. You have to figure out how to use that limited resource in order to take care of yourself and then take care of the other wants on your list, which often include other people. We often, one of the big trade-offs that I get asked about all the time is, do I put money in the college account or do I put money in, in the retirement account? Mm. And retirement is the right answer, right? If there is a correct answer, it's make sure you have enough money for retirement and That's... then fund college. You can try to strike some sort of a balance, but to put your kids so far behind yourself doesn't sit well with most of the parents that I've crossed paths with. So we try to figure out a way to do both in, in a lesser degree and help our kids while we help ourselves. We can just load junior up with student loans. That, that'll never be a problem. Right. Exactly. 
exactly as we're seeing right now with the $1.4 trillion in student loan debt that nobody is struggling with. <laughs> nobody at all, right. Speaking of struggle, I'm Catholic, you're Jewish. How does our shared tradition of guilt hold us back financially? Boy, guilt doesn't help anybody with anything. And yet it's a really, really difficult emotion to get rid of. I think guilt prevents us from taking the right actions. It makes us feel as if everything we're doing is, is wrong. I mean, if, if I could eliminate guilt from my life, I would be a very, very happy person. I've tried. I had a whole conversation years ago with Susie Welsh where she explained to me that she was able to do this. She just decided no more with the guilt. Mm-hmm. I, I can't. But, I, but I, 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 I just, you know, I, I think that it's, you feel responsible for others and, and therefore guilt is, is tough to eliminate. But I, I do think if you can get yourself not to dwell on it more than you absolutely have to, you're better off for it. And guilt's cousin should also plays a role in the, uh, the stories we tell ourselves around how we spend or invest our money. Yeah, anytime that word should crops up in I should be doing this, I should be doing that, you got to take a real hard look at why you think that and whether that should is really a product of what you want or whether it's a product of what society is telling you that you should want. Sometimes the societal shoulds are there for a reason. You know, I should save 15% of whatever it is I'm earning. Well, yes, you should. You should, because that's how much you're going to need statistically with matching dollars so that you can replace 85% of your pre-retirement income when you retire. I should go to this fundraiser because my my neighbor invited me. Well, the tickets are $400, and maybe you have better uses for your charitable giving if you bothered to think about what they were, right? It's, they're very, very different should. When you're feeling put upon by somebody else to use your money in a way that doesn't quite line up with your values, then that should probably should be eliminated. So back to your theory that money is a tool to help us live a better life. A should is a distraction from, from going down that path. Exactly. You talk a lot about money stories, how what we witnessed in our childhood affects our relationship with money today. So if I grew up hearing my parents argue about money, how might, how might that affect my relationship? By the way, I did not, not really, but how would that affect my relationship with money today? You might decide that money is something that you should fight about or you might decide that money is something that you should never deal with because if you deal with it you will fight about it or you might not deal with your money at all because the air was so polluted whenever money was the topic in your household that you just think it's something that you don't want to touch or think about or deal with. So here's the interesting thing about money stories. It's not what we were taught about money. It's not what your parents tried to save and spend and share jars on your dresser to teach you that you should save a little bit and spend a little bit and give a little bit away. I'm going to tell Ron Lieber. Your money story is not that. 
it is the fighting. It's the atmosphere in the home. It's the fact that when the paycheck arrived or the visa bill, everybody was really cranky or the fact that the time around the holidays was not happy. It was stressed because there wasn't enough money to create the holiday that one of your parents wanted to create. And nobody really told it to you, but you observed it and you absorbed it. And if you've taken the time to look at it, then you can understand how it is leading you to behave today and feel today. And if you haven't taken the time to look at it, then you're behaving in ways that are, you may even look at your own money behavior and think, God, I so irrational when it comes to money. I, I just, my behavior doesn't make sense and you don't know why because you haven't taken a look. When you take a look, then you can understand. Right. And you can decide that you want to do things differently. You can decide that you want to be more proactive about your money rather than digging your head in the sand, even though in your home of origin, it was something to be feared but you have to take a look before you can make those conscious choices. Mm -hmm. And then you also have to, if you're, if you've got a spouse or you've got a partner, you got to understand what's going on with them. Because if, if you are with somebody who you think spends irrationally or you think is way too reluctant to take any financial risk and you have no idea why that is, then it's really, really frustrating to live with that person <laughs> and to try to think up your, try to work to your goals together because you don't know. It's a difficult thing to handle and that's why it's part one of the book. It's funny, when I was writing the book and, and going through it, I put this section in and my editor said it, sent it back to me and said, don't you want to get right to the tactics? And I said, no. You know, you, you can't get to the tactics until you understand why you are able to or not able to embrace the tactics. Meaning understanding what emotions you absorbed growing up and then how the, that affects where you are today. Yeah. Why are you reluctant to take risks? Why are you reluctant to spend? Why do you spend when you're really, really sad or really, really happy? Like, what is that? And it's really personal. Mm -hmm. So so understanding yourself as an emotional creature as it relates to money is something that you have to do in order to help yourself accomplish your other goals. I don't spend because I don't deserve it. There's the Catholicism coming out. No, that's not true. Not entirely true. So you point out a lot of things about some of the differences uh, between men and women as it relates to money. Do women make better savers because they don't buy trans ams and big stereos? <laughs> women make better savers because women are fearful about the future. I think women, I mean, it's been shown, you know, women save about four tenths of 1% more of our money of our wages each year. We're more, I think, fearful and that, encourages us to to just sock more money away fear is is probably not a positive emotion but it has a positive outcome at least when it comes to savings yeah it absolutely can <laughs> that's bizarre but it then holds us back when it comes to putting that money to work 
So right, it's a double-edged right. sword, right? right? This need for security and safety actually gets in the way of our financial security because only very, very rich people can make it on savings alone. Very, very rich or very, very frugal. Especially these days with so, so right, where interest rates as low as they are. And inflation, right? After taxes yep. and inflation, if you've got money in a savings account, you're losing money. You're, yeah, you're lending money to the bank, literally. How do women think about legacy differently than men? We're more concerned about leaving one. We're more concerned about the impact that we're making on the world, the earth, the political landscape, our children. And I think you can see this interestingly in the world of impact investing. So impact investing, also called ESG investing, ESG stands for environmental, social, and government, is a methodology of screening investments for impact on the world, the, on ecology and, and the environment, on social factors and governance companies that have women in leadership positions or on their boards, um, women and minorities. and. Women and, and millennials have really led the way there in terms of making this a more popular way of investing money. And right now, about one in five dollars is invested by ESG principles, but the number's growing pretty quickly. So your investment strategy follows your personal values. Exactly. How do the returns on those funds look versus more general funds? Just out they of look. Um, just as good, if not sometimes better, which is interesting because that part of the industry has gone through a turn. So I grew up, I was a um, in my 20s, a reporter at Forbes magazine. Mm-hmm. And this was in the early days when it was called socially responsible investing. And I remember a lot of stories being written, not by me, but by other reporters about how, yeah, you could invest this way, but you're not going to get same good returns as if you invest other ways. And and that's just not true anymore. In fact, one of the interesting things that I learned when reporting this book is that sometimes these ESG screens, in addition to providing returns that are just as good, find problems in companies before they come to light. So the ESG screened portfolios, some of them at least, had gotten rid of Volkswagen before the emission scandal and had mm-hmm. gotten rid of Equifax before the credit scandal because of the ways that those companies were being managed. They just saw problems in management that, that eventually led to these scandals. Pretty cool. Yeah, I thought so. Let's talk for a second about the gender pay gap. So it's closing, so it's not something we should worry about, right? Correct. Well, (laughs) (laughs) closing is a very optimistic term. It is shrinking, but can you tell us a little bit more about what factors contribute to it and and what do you think is to be done about it today and over the next decade or two? I think you have to work the problem from both the individual level and the corporate level. So we work it from the corporate level with the help of big companies that are making sure that they are leveling pay for, you know, for doing the same job, essentially. 
when we compare women and men, when we compare minorities for whom the pay gap is, is even greater. But we also have to work it from the individual level. So that means that women step up and ask for money. You know, we get comfortable with the idea of negotiating for more money for us. One of the most surprising statistics in the book was that, you know, even if you look at recent college graduates, 57% of men negotiate for that first salary and only 7% of women do. (laughs) And yeah, and that, if you don't ask, more money is not coming your way. My husband spent almost 20 years as an internal head of talent at a major magazine company. And he would always leave a little something back, waiting for the negotiation. And it was a company of many women. And in a lot of cases, that negotiation never happened because women did not ask. As a hiring manager in sales, I've hired many people and I've I always took it as a little bit of a warning sign when people didn't negotiate and I'm not making a gender judgment on this one because I don't, I don't remember exactly splitting it up by gender who negotiated more, more strongly, but it was always a warning sign to me that when a salesperson doesn't try to negotiate a sales package, maybe they're not as aggressive a salesperson as I was hoping for. Yeah. I look, it's hard. I have run my own business now for the past 10 years. And often find myself negotiating for my own appearances and other services. It is not easy to ask for money for you. It just, right. it just isn't. Sure. But when you do it, it gets easier. When you hear the words coming out of your own mouth and you realize nobody died, it just gets easier. <laughs> In some of those ways that you make it easier is you encourage women to both know their number and find their why a little bit different concepts, but related. Yeah. So knowing your number means going online and do the, doing the research, figuring out what somebody with your set of skills should be paid. What's the number? What's the amount that they are getting from companies, including yours, because sometimes we're punished for, for our loyalty in that new employees who are hired to do the same job are paid more than we are. What are those numbers? What are people with our skills worth on the open market? So we figure that out. And then we figure out why we need to be earning money, why we should be earning money. What would you do with that additional money? What would that what difference would that make in your life? What difference it's this and this is a personal side of things. It's It's not something that you have to share, nor should you share with the person that you're negotiating with. It's something to hold on to for yourself. In fact, when you are negotiating, you want to share something completely different. And that is the value that you are bringing to this company and the value that you could get on the open market. One very tried and true way to get paid more is to get another offer. Um, You can only do it one time with each employer and you do have to be willing to jump, but it is, it it can be very successful. You tell the story of being a small business person in your own right and struggling paying people at their full value as well. You gave one of your employees a raise and shortly thereafter gave her another raise. What happened there? 
I went home and thought about it, basically. I mean, she was up again. She was up for her review. It was She had been with me two years, I believe, two years. And I gave her a pretty significant raise. It was $5,000 raise. And then I went home and was just thinking about the various ways she had stepped up over the last year and how much more she was contributing to the company and how much more the company was earning because of this work that she was doing. And I just decided that I, I decided that she was worth more. And I went back the next day and gave her an additional raise. And, you know, I did it in part in an attempt to two years is usually about the time where people start to um, get an itch in, in journalism and start thinking about maybe they want to write for other places. And I, yep. I was trying to prevent that from happening, but, but she also deserved it. And I felt like she deserved to know she deserved it. That's great. And there's benefits to be in a home where there's closer pay equity. You, you list one benefit as being hotter sex among married couples where women makes as much as the man. That was not my original research. That was, you didn't, it wasn't anecdotal either, I assume. No. <laughs> I'll, well, it is in line with a note from Lean In by Sheryl Sandberg, where she said that men who share in the household duties have more and better sex. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go in and, and buy into those concepts. Yeah, I absolutely think it's true. Why do you think it's true? Just out of curiosity. I think that I think that couples who have come together to respect each other for, you know, whatever strengths each of them bring to the relationship mm-hmm. are likely to be stronger couples. And I think stronger couples are likely to have better romantic lives. Sometimes I'm asked, and this is a little bit of an aside, but sometimes I'm asked, what's the best way for couples to manage their money together? Mm-hmm. And in the book, I've got about 12 different ways, real life examples from, from real couples that are working for couples. And, and that was intentional because my feeling is as long as it's working, then the two of you should just shut the rest of the world out. There's so much judgment on other people and their money and relationships that you don't need that as, as a couple from, from anybody. You don't need anybody weighing in on the fact that, well, your, your wife makes more than you do, or your husband has taken over these other, you know, household tasks for the outside world to look at something that's working in a relationship when half of all relationships end in divorce anyway, if, if it's working for you, then just let it work and close ranks and shut everybody else out. <laughs> well, along those lines, every relationship is unique and you are in your second marriage and you have combined family. So your current money situation and the way you deal with your husband is based on factors that are unique to where you are in life as opposed to what it probably was like in your first marriage. Can you talk a little bit about the compromises you make or the things you struggle with at this point? Sure. My husband and I, I mean, our biggest difference, I think, is that we're eight years apart in age. And so we're 
at a slightly different place in our retirement trajectory. Mm-hmm. He's, he is going to be 63 this week. I'm 54. And I'm nowhere near ready to slow down. And he left his long-time corporate job and is doing consulting, but he's more ready than I am to slow yeah. down. That's a big shift. And that's something that we have to keep talking about and, and dealing with because I am not at a place in my life where I, I want somebody to tell me that I shouldn't be working as much as I'm working because I enjoy that. So, you know, we deal with it and we, we talk about it. Mostly the way that we hold each other accountable is just by keeping our eye on what our goals are and how we're going to get there together, whether it's a big vacation, whether it's a new apartment, the big things typically, because the goals are the what, right? When we talk about what do you want from your money, the goals are the what, and you may want slightly different things than your spouse and that's fine, but if yourself doesn't know what you want and you don't know what yourself wants, that's a problem. So keeping that in focus, what do we want? When do we want it? How are we going to achieve it? That's how we keep ourselves on track. Tell me how you feel when you hear the word Florida. <laughs> it's so not, it's not really for me. <laughs> so much for me. I, I mean, I'm happy to visit. <laughs> I'm I'm at the age where friends are starting to talk about moving there. Some friends have actually already moved there. My parents are snowbirds. It's it's uh yeah it's not so much for me. I I uh, I prefer the East Coast. I think I prefer California eventually if we have to go somewhere warm for a little while. But I'm I'm not there yet. Tucson's nice. Tucson's great. I'm not. You know what? Tucson, I, I, the dryness there is, is a little <laughs> bit much for me. But yeah, Tucson is very nice. My son is living out in California, so I've had the opportunity to spend more time out in L.A. than usual, and I, I really like L.A. L.A., the new retirement destination. Boy. Yeah, I think not. <laughs> Culver City is going to be overrun with octogenarians. Let's <laughs> look to that. Jean, tell me, what was your money story growing up, and how do you think that led you to what you do today? I don't know that it was any sort of a direct line. I was raised in a household where there was enough money, but not an excess of money. My parents were pretty frugal. I mean, I remember the whole family sitting out. We had planned our first trip to Disney World. I think it was about 13, maybe. Mm -hmm. And um, we had a family piggy bank. And I remember sitting around the living room, all of us, me and my parents, my two younger brothers, and opening the cork on that piggy bank, which hadn't been opened since I was born, and seeing the, all the silver dollars that my parents had stuffed in there through the years, and that that was going to be the money that bought the entrance to Disney World. I mean, that was sort of a huge lesson in what can happen, what good things can happen, mm-hmm. you know, if you save for a long time. I think I didn't quite realize how frugal my parents were until I took a moment to look back at my own money story when I was growing up. And it ex- explains why I am as risk averse as I am. And I'm, I'm probably a little bit more conservative than I should be. But I had to look at that to understand it. 
about myself. The other thing that's pretty striking is the strong female role model. My mother handled the money. She was better at math than my father. She also enjoyed it more. And I don't just mean the budgeting. She managed the investments, bought the bonds, dealt Mm -hmm. with the retirement portfolios. And I don't think that was lost on me. We're going to put all all in Westinghouse. That's where it's going to go. Exactly. (laughs) That would have been a good investment at a time. So what part of your own money advice do you have the most trouble following? Hmm. That's a good question. Sometimes I have trouble getting myself to put as much as I probably should in stocks versus in safer havens. Mm-hmm. I have to push myself to do that. Do you have fear saving of is not a saving is not a problem for me. I'm a I'm a really really good saver. Do you find yourself being risk averse when it comes to equities? Yeah, not to the point of not having any money in stocks because I've got plenty of money in stocks. But, you know, when I look at my asset allocations, I have to push myself to to get to the point where I probably should be. I, I tend to be 5 or 10% shy of what I should be. Mm-hmm. What's something you've bought that you regret? Uh, if it was on sale when I bought it, I probably regretted it. <laughs> I've made a lot of bad decisions just because things were on sale. <laughs> and and for a year, I, I did this experiment where I just did not allow myself to buy anything on sale. And I should have kept it going forever because I was much, much better with my purchasing. When you say on sale, is there a category of expenditures that you're most susceptible to falling toward? To clothing. So you got a whole bunch of sales merchandise in your closet that you've worn once or never. Yeah, pretty much. And I've pretty much gotten rid of it. I try to look at anything that's on sale and ask myself, would I have bought this if it wasn't on sale? And if the answer is no, I try to not buy it. Sometimes I'll leave something in a store and I'll say, okay, look, if I'm still thinking about this in 48 hours, I'm going to come back and get it. But generally I find that to be rarely the case and I can live without it. Yeah. Exactly. And I think I do that too. I think that's a really good rule. And it's also very, very easy to do that with money that's in the bank. You know, you can do that with money that you're spending online. Right. Because because you can just leave it in your cart and then they'll send you an ad and offer you 15% off because they're tracking your every move. Right. So yes. you're better off anyway. Yeah. On this podcast, we try to ask ourselves what money means to us and what we want from it. So I want to ask you, How do you define the term rich and do you consider yourself to be rich? I think being rich means having choices, particularly choices about what to do with your time Mm -hmm. because time is truly the limited resource. And yeah, I'm absolutely rich. Good answer. Lastly, what do you want your legacy to be? Happy children and a generation of women who feel confident and competent about making decisions about their money. That's great. And thank you for all the work that you do. Jean, where can our listeners find out more about you? Best place to find me is at hermoney.com. All right. Jean Chatsky is the author of Women with Money, The Judgment-Free Guide to Creating the Joyful, Less Stressed, Purposeful, and Yes, Rich Life You Deserve. It's a great read, comprehensive read. She covers a whole bunch of stuff and it's very worth your time. Gene, thanks for joining us on Crazy Money today. 
Thank you so much for having me. It was fun. So that's our interview with Jean. Jean, thank you very much for stopping by and spending some time with us. Thanks for the work you did. Hopefully our audience will take your words to heart and be more purposeful about their relationship with money and their relationship with those they love who have their own relationship with money. Folks, thanks again for joining us. If you have a few minutes, make sure you subscribe to the podcast. Give us some reviews and ratings. Write out a review. Those are really helpful and indicate to the purveyors of podcasts that I have an involved audience and that makes me look more more credible, more important. I want to dominate the thoughtful relationship with money podcast category. That's my goal. Also, drop me an email at paulollinger.com, O-L-L-I-N-G-E-R. Tell me what you like. Tell me what you'd like to see more of. Shoot me some questions for guests or ideas for future guests. To take us out today, we have a very special treat. A listener and a friend of the show, Jerry Rowan, wrote us a little unofficial theme song that I hope you enjoy. Jerry, thanks a whole bunch. Folks, if you want to write us a poem or a limerick or a haiku, shoot it to me at paulollinger.com. Maybe I'll read it on the air. Okay, y'all have a great week. Bye. Crazy money with the funny guy from Facebook. Crazy money with Paul Ollinger. Crazy money with a guy you knew, Mark Zuckerberg. Crazy money with Paul Ollinger. Crazy. boring or financial speaks to the heart and it's spiritual crazy money with Paul Ollinger crazy 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 money with Paul Ollinger crazy money with Paul Ollinger crazy crazy money Paul Allinger, crazy money with Paul Allinger, crazy, crazy.